Um, I'm not going to be reading a verse out of Philippians immediately, but I'm going to be kind of setting a couple of things up. But if you have your Bible, wave them at me. Okay, we, I don't want us to get so used to this PowerPoint, we don't bring Bibles. You know what I used to say, and I'll say it again. If you come to church without a Bible, it's like you came in your underwear. <laughs> Nobody wants to come to church in their underwear. If you come without a Bible, something's not right about that because this is a church. And no condemnation. I just want to encourage you to bring a Bible and bring something to write with. Bring something to take notes with. Because we're going to learn the Word of God, and we're going to grow uh, by the Word of God. So let's do stand and have a prayer, and then you can be seated. And then I'm going to teach you out of Philippians tonight. This is good stuff. I'm excited about it. Um, I was listening to myself on the way to church tonight, and I got cranked. I got excited. I amen myself. You ought to be in church. Did you all hear that? How many of you heard that? You ought to be in church. It was why Satan doesn't want you in church. But you're here, so I'm preaching to the choir. But let's, uh, let's have a prayer. Father, we just thank you for the word tonight. We thank you for this wonderful little letter to the Philippian church, born out of tribulation, by the blood, sweat, and tears of the Apostle Paul. We pray, Lord, that you will feed us this word, that we may grow thereby. Lord, enrich us tonight. Build us up in the faith. Now, can you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me. I receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Tell your neighbor, it's going to be good tonight. You better perk up and listen. You're going to need it tomorrow. All right, I want to just, uh, before I go into the actual book, I want to take a little quick aside, and I want to uh, share with you why we do this. You know, I was with some preachers this week, and can I just be honest with you here tonight, and uh, you don't tell anybody what I'm going to say? Okay. I find that uh, a, lot of, a lot of pastors, and, and not a criticism of pastors, I love pastors. I, I minister to pastors. And I have a heart for them. And that's part of the reason I'm saying this. But I, I find that a lot of pastors don't teach on Wednesday nights. They don't have Wednesday night church, uh, church services. Uh, they have different classes that go on, but the, the pastor doesn't teach. Now, again, I'm not being critical, but I'm going to tell you when I hear that, I say, well, then, so Sunday is the only time you minister the Word. Yeah. And I think, my own, my own choice. Uh, we could have classes on Wednesday nights and, and me not stand up here. But I believe that God's people are already struggling with spiritual anemia. And we need to be taught. Now, I want to just show you something here. Why do we go through books like this? Because I go through whole books. Philippians, we're going to maybe go on into Colossians after this. Colossal Colossians. Uh, but why do we go through whole books? Why not just, uh, like a lot of churches do, just have a few pet doctrines, a few pet verses, and just hammer that all the time? Well, one thing I saw when I was in the country this week, you went through all kinds of cow pastures, and you would look out there and you would see these huge, uh, the, huge acreages, many, many acres 
with, with cows in them, real healthy-looking cows, green grass, and they were not just eating in one place, but they grazed. They grazed all over that acreage, walked as they ate. And I thought, you know, it would be cruel of the, the uh, farmer to, to hem them in where all they could do is eat out of one little place. No, he gives them the whole field. And Paul said to his people, one of the churches that he had ministered to, he said, I did not hesitate to share with you the whole counsel of God. I took you through the whole field. You know what, folks? Here's the field. It is Genesis to Revelation. And we're supposed to graze from Genesis to Revelation. And I personally believe if you build it, they will come. If you feed them, they will stay. And we've got to get back to, to an understanding of teaching the whole counsel of God. Well, if every verse is inspired of God, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for reproof, instruction in righteousness, and so on and so forth. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. How much Scripture? All. So God wants us to graze through the whole field. So let me just show you something. Acts 5.42. Let's make a distinction tonight. Look what it says. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on doing what? Preach to me, everybody. Teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now I want you to notice those two words, teaching and preaching. Let me show you the difference between the two. The word teach comes from a word meaning to learn. That's what teach means. We're told that Jesus taught the word everywhere that he went. As a matter of fact, our Lord Jesus Christ was called, what everybody? Teacher. So you have God incarnate, God wrapped in flesh. And what did God wrapped in flesh do? What did God do when he visited this planet and to, to reach you and me, he taught us. He taught us. Now, keeping what teaching means in mind, the word preach means to announce good news. And it generally has to do with evangelism, preaching the gospel. The Greek word that preach comes from is euangelion, and it means evangelism. That's where we get evangelism from. So when we talk about a minister standing up and preaching. Well, that's good, and that's a good thing, but technically, unless I'm preaching the gospel to lost people, I really was teaching. And what we need in the church is not just the declaration of the good news. We need to hear that all the time. You'll hear me, salt and pepper, almost every message I preach on Sunday with the blood, with the cross. I'm never going to forsake those basics of the faith, but we need to be taught we need to learn. Amen? So the need for the lost is preaching. They need preaching. But the church needs teaching. Look what Peter encouraged us to do. Peter encouraged us to read it with me, everybody. Crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. You hear that word? Peter said, I want you to crave the word. I want you to crave the Word of God. Amen. Cry out for this nourishment, the verse goes on to say, now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. Can everybody say with me, cry out? Now here is 
Peter is saying, I want you to, I want you to crave. I want you to hunger for. I want you to cry out for the Word of God. Not just on a Sunday morning, but I want you to have a hunger. You know what I've noticed about the Word? The more I read it, the more I want to. And you know what? The less I read it, the less I want to. Now, he said, I want you as a child of God to crave, cry out for, long for, hunger for the Word of God. And he says, we need to go on past spiritual milk, though. He says, cry out for the spiritual milk. Cry out for that, those basics in the Word of God. But church, we've also got to go beyond the basics. Look what the writer of Hebrews, and I think it was Paul. You can persecute me if you want to. But since we don't, it just says Hebrews, and it's a big controversy in seminary about who wrote it. I believe it's Paul, so I'm going to say it was Paul. If you don't think it was Paul, don't hold it against me. Say amen. But I'm going to say Paul. I hope I don't make you stumble. But watch this. Paul lamented in Hebrews. He said, you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Now, I want you to think about that. How long have you been saved? He said, you've been saved long enough now. You ought to be teaching others. But instead, you need somebody to teach you the basic things about God's Word. You need to be taught all over again. Now, I want you to hear the apostles cry here. This bothers him. It grieves him. He says, You've been saved long enough. You ought to be having newborn Christians around you, and you ought to be teaching them. But instead, I'm going to have to teach you again the basics because you have forgotten the basics. Now notice, the failure to walk in the teaching they'd received was holding them back from growing into maturity. And that's the power of teaching. Now, I can teach you the Word of God but then you've got to go do the Word of God. I can teach it all night long. I can teach it all week long, and I would be happy to teach the Word all week long. If I knew I was going to get up every morning and come somewhere and teach, man, I'll tell you, I'd be fired up every single day because this is what I'm called to do. But now, I'm called to teach. I'm called to minister to you. But notice, if you don't do what you hear, then it holds you back from moving into maturity. Now, let me talk to you just for a second about maturity. Everybody say with me, maturity. Turn to your neighbor and say, grow up. Now turn to the other side of you and tell the other person to grow up. Now, I did a little study today, just, just shot through the epistles of Paul. And do you know that he talks about maturity over and over and over again? He said, I'm praying for you that you will grow up that you will grow up in the fullness of the stature of Christ. Having put away childish things, I want you to grow up. It's one thing to be childlike. It's another thing to be childish. And childlike means I'm trusting. I have faith. Uh, I'm like a little child. I, I, I receive what you tell me. But childish is when you pitch tantrums and you wear your heart on your sleeve and you're pouting and you got an anger problem and you want what you want when you want it and why, 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 why. And somebody's always having to change your diapers. He said, he said, the longing inside of me as your apostle 
is that you would grow up. He said, I'm praying for you that you would grow in the fullness of the stature of Christ, no longer children, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but solid, steady. I want you to be adults. And you know how you become adults? You hear the Word of God and you do it. You hear the Word of God and you do it. You hear the Word of God and you do it. He said, he said, I'm having to teach you all over again because what you heard before, you didn't do it. And now you have forgotten it. He goes on to say, by this time you ought to be teachers yourselves, yet here I find you need somebody to sit down with you and go over the basics of God again. Starting from square one, baby's milk, when you should have been on solid food long ago. Wow. You should have been on solid food, the meat of the Word, long ago. Milk is for beginners, Paul goes on to say. Those who are inexperienced in God's ways. Wow. Now, what is solid food for? Everybody say it with me. The mature. The spiritual grown-ups who have some practice in telling right from wrong. That's who can receive solid food. He said, when I came to you, I wanted to give you the meat of the Word, but I couldn't because you couldn't handle anything but milk. Now, it's one thing for a little baby to be on a bottle, but if you had a 16-year-old, 20-year-old, 30-year-old walk in here, sit in one of these chairs on a Sunday morning, pull out a baby bottle and start drinking, we would all think, "Uh uh-huh, yep, something major wrong there. But people who have been saved for 30 years, have never gotten past the basics. Never gotten past the basics. Can you say with me, oh me? And this is what Paul was bothered about. He said, what's the matter with you people? Okay? Now, what is the milk we should already know? Well, Hebrews 6 tells us what the milk is that we ought to already know. Look what he said. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead. And become what, everybody? Mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of first, repenting from evil deeds. There's milk. Placing our faith in God. That's the milk of the Word. You don't need further instruction about baptisms. We already understand water baptism. We should. Going to be water baptizing a whole lot of folks real soon. I don't think I'm going to be able to do it during church. I'm going to have to do it afterwards. There's going to be so many. But you know what? We ought to understand water baptism. That's the milk of the Word, the laying out of hands. To some people, that's the meat of the Word. But Paul says that's the milk of the Word, laying out of hands. What do you mean laying out of hands? What I mean is you get the sick down here, you anoint them with oil, and you lay hands on the sick. Jesus said you lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Jesus said that... Spiritual giftings are imparted by the laying out of hands. You see that in the New Testament. That's the milk of the Word, not the meat. Here's more. Number five, the resurrection of the dead. That's not meat. That's milk. One day, the bodies of those who have died in Christ are coming out of that grave. The resurrection of the dead. But that's milk. And then eternal judgment. It shouldn't be meat to us that eternal judgment is coming to this world. It's the milk of the Word. Judgment's coming. 
That doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. Judgment is coming. God is going to have to judge this world. That's the milk of the Word. He said, you ought to be past these things. You ought not need to hear these things over and over again. You ought to have it down. You ought to be able to get an A-plus on that test. And so he writes, and so God willing, read this with me, everybody, we will move forward to further understanding. Now, let me tell you quickly what I think this means. He's literally telling us God will not allow you to move on until you get those things down. you got to get down the milk of the Word before God will carry you on. And so God willing, we're going to move on to further understanding. Well, here's what I assume with this class tonight, with our, this group. I assume we've got the milk down. And so we're going to move on to some meat in the Word. Because we understand what I just went over with you. Most of you were saying, yep, amen, I get it. That's the milk of the Word. So <clears throat> this is what we're doing on Wednesday nights. We're moving on to the meat of the Word that we might grow into what, everyone? Spiritual maturity. So let's get on to Philippians. We saw last time that Philippians can be broken down into five topics. The first one, greetings and expressions of gratitude. The second, Paul's personal circumstances. He goes through that in chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. Number three, the pattern of the Christian life. And what is the pattern of the Christian life? The model, it is the humility of Jesus Christ. And when we get to that, it's so powerful. Oh, don't miss that. The humility of Jesus Christ. That's in chapter 2. Now the fourth thing, the fourth section in this little letter is the prize of the Christian life, which is the knowledge of Jesus. And that's what we're getting here on Wednesday nights, the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of God, okay? And then finally, the fifth section in Philippians is the peace of the Christian life, which is the presence of Christ. Amen. That's chapter 4, 1 through 23, and that's all about knowing His peace. And I'm so thankful His peace is not dependent on my circumstances. I can have peace no matter what. His peace passes understanding. Amen? All right. We also saw how Paul was able to maintain his joy. How many of you had joy this week? Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Come on, everybody. We ought to be experiencing some joy. Now, how did Paul maintain his joy? By thanksgiving, by being thankful, by prayer, by making the choice to rejoice, and by hope. That's found in the first chapter. Now let's move on. Next, Paul begins pointing out the marks of the spiritual maturity they were already experiencing and that he wanted them to continue growing in. So we're going to get a glimpse tonight into the spiritual maturity level of the Philippian church. How many of you in here want to be spiritually mature? I mean, you're tired of being tossed to and fro. You're tired of wah, 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 wah. And how many of you are tired of spiritual babies around you? Not that we don't want people born again, but if they're 30 years old in God, it's time to grow up. All right. First, he says, let me, let me brag on you Philippians for a minute. Because what I'm going to brag on you about is a mark of spiritual maturity. Here it is. The way they were willing to share 
in his sufferings. That is Paul's. Look what he writes. He says, So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God. Everybody say, share with me. Now, when did they share with him the grace and the calling that was on his life? How did they share with him? Look what he says. You shared with me when I was in prison. And you shared with me when I was defending and confirming the truth of the good news. Now, what he's saying is, he's not saying you sent me cookies when I was in prison. He's saying, you suffered with me. You bore the burden with me. It was like you were in prison. You didn't just hear that I was in prison and say, well, God bless him, we'll be praying for him, amen, and then forget about him. But because Paul was in prison, they shared the suffering. They shared it. Since he was in prison, they were in prison. And when he was defending the gospel, they were defending the gospel. Now, here's the principle. Spiritual maturity is marked by thinking of others, not just oneself. Spiritual maturity acts this way. If you're suffering, I suffer. If you're rejoicing, I rejoice. If you take a hit, I took a hit. If you're being blessed, I'm being blessed. If you're being blessed, it doesn't make me jealous of you. If you're being blessed, it makes me rejoice with you. That's what maturity does. Now, here's what a baby does. You get blessed, a baby says, why not me? How come you and not me? This isn't fair. I'm picking up my marbles and going home. That's what a baby does. Wah, wah, wah. But a spiritually mature person, Paul says, Philippians, let me brag on you. When I was suffering, you suffered with me. When I was defending the gospel successfully and seeing blessings, you rejoiced with me. In another place, Paul wrote, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And that is spiritual maturity. Can you say with me again, grow up? And you know, that's not easy to do. You get around people, it seems like everything they touch is blessed. And sometimes it's real hard to say, praise the Lord. <laughs> praise God. Man, I just rejoice with you. Oh, you got another blessing financially. Oh, is that your new car? Oh, look at that new house. Hallelujah. Oh, you had that door open and that door open. Oh, what a blessing. I'm so happy for you. And inside you're thinking, you sorry rascal. What did you do to deserve? I pray as much as I pray more than you do. No, sometimes God will bless people around you to test you. To test you. Because he's wanting us to learn how to grow up. And spiritual maturity says, oh, wow, God blessed you. I rejoice with you because, look, if you win, I win. If I win, you win. I tell our staff all the time in staff meetings, when we finish the staff meeting, I say to them, we're a team. This is not a one-man show. This is a team. And if you win, I win. And if I win, you win. So we're carrying each other. And so if you have a great victory, I have a great victory. And if I have a victory, you just had a victory because we're one. 
So spiritual maturity is marked by thinking of others, not just oneself. Later on in Philippians, Paul is going to say this, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Why? You got to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And what was his attitude? His attitude was always thinking about others. Kathy's this way. Kathy puts me to shame when it comes to this. I'll just brag on Kathy a minute. She's always remembering to buy birthday cards, congratulatory cards, Christmas cards, anniversary cards. People come up to me and say, thank you for the card. And I go, praise the Lord. I look for it all day long. No, I'm kidding. kidding. But just this week, we were with uh, our dear friends, George and Jerry Teske in East Texas, and she had remembered Jerry's birthday. She had her a present. She had her a card. And I heard Jerry say what I know is true. Jerry said, Kathy, you always remember. I'd have a lot of people mad at me if it wasn't for her because she remembers. And that's the truth. Give the first lady here a hand. It's really true. It's just something she does. I remember to feed you the Word of God. She remembers your birthday. Are you blushing, Kathy? (laughs) No. All right. Now, so here's the second mark of maturity that he pointed out in Philippians. The second mark of maturity, you can mark this down, is the growth of love. The growth of love among them. Look at what he says about them. So this is my prayer, that your love will abound and that you will not only love much, but love well. Now, in the King James Version, there is a yet put in there. He said, so this is my prayer, that your love will yet abound more and more. In other words, they'd already grown in love. But he said, my prayer is that you'll keep on abounding in love, that your level of love, your love level, will not plateau, but you will love people on an increasing basis. Let me ask you a question. Do you love people more since you've been saved? Do you love people more? Do you love people more than you loved them, say, a year ago? Do you see yourself getting a gentler heart, a softer heart, more compassionate heart, more forgiving heart, more merciful heart? Do you see that happening inside of you? See, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He said, my prayer is that your love for people, your love for the church, with all its faults, with all its warts, with all its shortcomings, that your love for the church will continue to grow. Now, here's the principle. The key characteristic of spiritual maturity is love and continuing to grow in it. I'm going to make a projection to you. If, if you're saved and you're seeking God and you're in the Word and you're in love with Jesus and obeying Him in your life, you are destined to love people more with every year that passes. By the time you go to be with Him, you're going to be a lover of people. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes on Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And what did Paul say about love in 1 Corinthians 13? He said, it doesn't matter what your level of giftedness is. 
doesn't matter if you can speak with the greatest of orators. It doesn't matter if you've got gifts out the kazoodle. doesn't matter. If you don't have love, you are a clanging symbol. Do you know what a clanging symbol sounds like? I could get Reuben up here and say, Reuben, start banging on that symbol. wouldn't take long. You'd say, stop. There you have a clanging symbol. It's empty. It's irritating. It's abrasive. So God says, I want you to keep growing in love. And the Philippians were. So that's a key to maturity. So Pastor Jeff, I thought the key to maturity was success or the mark of maturity. The true characteristic of it? No, it's not success. It's love. Well, I thought the mark of maturity was charisma, great giftedness. Can I tell you the truth? I've known jerks who were gifted. Had no fruit at all. God wants us to have love. Now look at the word abound. He said, I want you to abound in love. Abound comes from a Greek word that means to superabound in quantity or quality, to be in excess, to have enough and to spare. Can you imagine waking up on any given day and having enough love and to spare to love everybody out there in that world? Say, Pastor, I do good just to eke by and be decent to people. I understand. But watch this now. He said, my prayer is, now, now, now church, do you think that this is fairy tale? Is this wishful thinking? He says, no, this is normal Christianity. Normal, not unusual, it's normal. I pray that you may abound, superabound, be in excess of, have enough love and to spare. That's what it means to abound. Over and above and beyond. That's how much God wants us walking in love. Now, can I give you a a million-dollar question tonight. Do you see this kind of love in the church? Do you? See a lot of judgmentalism in the church? A lot of picking people apart in the church? See a lot of heavy-handed condemnation in the church? But when was the last time you walked into a place where they were so superabounding in love that they were in excess of it? Remember when you would say to your kids, I remember I'd do this with my kids. I would say, I would say, Jeremy will kill me for this, but I'd say, Jeremy, how much do you love Daddy? And he'd say, this much. And he'd say, Daddy, how much do you love me? And I'd say, this much. Then I'd say to Julia, how much do you love Daddy, Julia? She'd say, this much. And I said, okay, I'm going to tell both of you how much I love you. This much. In other words, endlessly, God wants us to be able to say to people, How much do you love me? This much? This much? No, we love you this much. Agape. We love you super abundantly. And that is grown inside of you when you walk with the one who loved us enough to die for us. Amen? Now, also, I want you to notice a connection tonight that Paul makes between love and knowledge and perception. Say with me, knowledge and perception. Notice what he says. 
And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more and extend to its fullest development in, say it now, knowledge and all keen perception. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Notice Paul said, love that grows will also have knowledge growing with it and perception or discernment growing with it. Why, Paul, we might ask, should it matter that I have knowledge and discernment with my love? Here's the answer. So that you don't love foolishly, but you love wisely. If you love people, folks, you've also got to have the knowledge to use the love wisely and the discernment to use the love wisely. That's what he's saying. Listen to the Message Bible. This is so good. The Message Bible says, you need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? That's not a Greek word, gush, but I like it. Sentimental gush. Because you know what our culture teaches? Our culture teaches sentimental gush. Our culture teaches stupid, senseless, meaningless sentimentality. And that is not Bible love. Our culture has greatly confused love with sentimentality. Compassion with runaway emotion. There are both wise and unwise ways to extend the hand of love. Think with me for a moment of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Jesus. Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus catches a fever, something deadly. His fever soars. He's in big trouble physically. He's dying. Mary and Martha send messengers to Jesus Christ who had eaten with them, spent time in their home, was close to them, knew them well. And she said to the messengers, tell him, he who you love is sick. Please hurry and come and heal him. Now watch this, church. Sentimental, gushy emotionalism would have run to him, fell all over him, wept all over him, and healed him. Love waited on God and said, what are you doing here? What are you doing in this situation? And do you know that Jesus stayed in another town while his fever soared and finally took his life and he died? Now, if Jesus had been alive in our day, can you imagine how the media would have torn him to shreds? Can you imagine how the media would have ripped him apart? You say you're the Savior of the world. You say you're the Messiah. You say you came to uh, save mankind because you love him so much, and yet you let Lazarus die. But Jesus told his disciples something that Mary and Martha didn't even know. He said, this sickness is not to death, but it's to the glory of God. Sit right here. And they waited four days, and he died. Of course, you know the rest of the story. Jesus went and raised him from the dead. A much more powerful miracle than healing a sickness. Lazarus is just one of a handful of people that got to experience two funerals. <laughs> now, here's what I'm, sh I'm saying to you. You've got to use wisdom with love, knowledge with love. So Paul prayed that 
with their growth in love, they would also grow in the knowledge of how to use it wisely. I love this quote. Uh, Well, let me read the principle first. True love must be paired with knowledge and discernment that it might be stronger, wiser, and abler love. And some of you with kids know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're gushy sentimental with them, they'll get away with anything and everything. There's times you've got to show strong agape love that doesn't cater to their every whim or you could destroy them. Frederick Buechner wrote on this very thing. This is great, and I want to read this as we close. He wrote this, In the Christian sense, love is not primarily an emotion, but it's an act of the will. When Jesus tells us to love our neighbors, He is not telling us to love them in the sense of responding to them with a cozy emotional feeling. You can as easily produce a cozy emotional feeling on demand as you can a yawn or a sneeze. On the contrary, he's telling us to love our neighbors in the sense of being willing to work for their well-being, even if it means sacrificing our own well-being to that end. And even if it means sometimes just leaving them alone. In Jesus' mind, we can love our neighbors without necessarily liking them. In fact, liking them may stand in the way of loving them. By making us overprotective sentimentalists instead of reasonably honest friends. Have you ever noticed how liking somebody can keep you from loving them? Oh, I like them too much to tell them the truth. I like them too much to tell them they need to quit that habit. I like them too much to tell them that I think there's real trouble in their marriage. I like them too much. Don't want to lose their friendship. I like being around them. So I'll just keep my feelings to myself. When love would do something totally different, So he says, I pray that as you grow in love, you'll grow in knowledge of how to use it and discernment. Amen? We learned a long time ago in ministering benevolence. I'll never forget it. Years and years ago, not here, long time ago, when we were just learning how to do benevolence, we had a man come in and wanted some benevolence money. And we gave him some money. He had a real sad story, violin, playing, par excellence, knew exactly how to spin that tale, tell you how bad things had been. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And then later that day, we saw him staggering down the street, drunk from the money we'd given him. And we learned, you got to be wise in how you help people. With your love, you need knowledge. And you need discernment. You need this in your marriage. You need this in your friendships. You need this with your church. Say, Lord, I'm walking in love, but give me knowledge. Give me wisdom. Don't let me be a stupid lover, an ignorant lover, a foolish lover. But help me to know how to use this love in a way that glorifies God. Isn't that good? Let's stand together, can we? Well, how many of you want to abound in love? All right, I'm going to pray for you. Let's just put our hands right up towards the Lord. Say, Jesus, I receive 
your word tonight. I want to move on in maturity. I don't want to stay a baby. So help me to grow in love, abounding in it, and in knowledge and discernment. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing a song before we...